Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us on Banter today is Yuval Levin, who's the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies here with us at AEI. He also holds the Beth and Ravenel Curry Chair in Public Policy. He's the founding and current editor of National Affairs and is a senior editor of The New Atlantis and a contributing editor to National Review. Yuval has served as a member of the White House domestic policy staff under President Bush. He was also executive director of the President's Council on Bioethics and a congressional staffer at the member, committee, and leadership levels. His most recent book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream, was published in 2020. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Yuval. Thanks very much for having me. I'm so happy we've got Yuval Phoebe here. <laughs> we finally got him. <laughs> we finally got him. He's so busy. He, you know, every time you turn around, somebody else is saying that his book was the best thing, and he really diagnosed the problems of our country better than anybody else. And so he's in high demand, and so to have him come with us is, is going to be a real treat in the next 45 minutes. Yuval, I wanted to start out by asking you about sort of the basis of our country, our people and the non-political institutions that they rely on in their life, their faith, community, business, education, media. Are you concerned that they're not as strong as they used to be, both in the depth of our people and the strength, the moral fiber, and in also in their institutions? Well, thank you. First of all, it's great to be here. And, and I think that's the right place to start. When we think about our country, it makes the most sense to think from the bottom up. And when we think about society, I think it's best to see it as almost like a set of concentric rings where the people are at the center around the individual. There is the family, the community, a set of institutions connected to religion, education, work. And only then can we begin to approach the political. And what matters most are those institutions that are closest to the person and the family. And you know, what they do for us is that they form us. We need strong institutions because we need formation. We don't start out ready to be free citizens. So the question of whether these institutions are doing well is really the question of whether our society is doing what it needs to do to sustain itself and strengthen itself. And, you know, the answer is mixed. I mean, I think that we are at a time when there are real challenges for a lot of American families and for a lot of American communities. Now, I wouldn't necessarily think of it in terms of, are they as strong as they used to be? I'm not sure that there is a golden age that I would point to when things were as they ought to be. But the question is, are they as strong as we need them to be? And I think there, for too many Americans today, the answer is no. The family is, for too many Americans, not strong enough to provide the kind of support and formation that they require. And we're certainly seeing a weakening of the institutions around the family, whether that's religious affiliation and the strength of, of church communities and other religious communities, or whether that's civil society and community. I think worrying about America has to begin by worrying about those. And this is a time when there's a lot to worry about on those fronts. Well, I want to mention one that I threw in when I did the introduction, which maybe you, you missed because you didn't mention it. And, and, I, and I have a feeling in my own mind as I look out at the companies and corporations and businesses that hire and the community of work. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if there's been some strengthening there. Is, is the institutional backing and support that, that Americans get from their workplace, has that gotten better? Is it possible that they're more 
friendlier, warmer, more nurturing than they've ever been or not? Well, again, I I think it's worth thinking about what this looks like for Americans in different kinds of circumstances and situations. We value work more now than we did 30 years ago and 40 years ago. I think American society as a general matter takes work more seriously than it used to and sees work as necessary to the formation of the individual in a more serious way than it used to. But I just to just say, when the family is weakening and when the faith-based institutions are weakening, it's sometimes it's, it's by default. It's all they've got. Absolutely. I agree with that. And it also, it is necessary. I mean, work, it, work instills discipline. It creates community. It enables us to get to know one another. It, it shows us what it means to be responsible to other people why certain kinds of very basic virtues are needed and are useful. And so I think that's very valuable. I would say there are signs of weakness too. Americans stay in jobs for a shorter time than ever now. And there's much more, particularly among younger Americans, there's a tendency to think of a job as something you do for a couple of years and then move on, which wasn't always the way Americans thought about work. And there's also a greater divide than ever between Americans who have gone to college and those who have not. And that divide shows itself in the workplace. But I do think that the kind of community formation, individual formation that happens in the workplace is in strong shape on the whole in America. And it's something we ought to be proud of. And then on family, you said the family institution is weakening as if it was weakening for everybody. Yeah. But isn't, isn't it really true that it's weakening for people who don't form married families and stay married over a extended period of time in the raising of their kids. Aren't we divided by family formation in some extent that families that are, that are formed under the sort of traditional marriage circumstance, those families are pretty strong. And families yeah. that don't have that, those families are weak. Or, or, or are we all bad? That, that's certainly true. You know, our colleague Brad Wilcox has shown this now for a long time, that there's a marriage divide in America. And it's connected to the class divide that's basically defined by college education. People who go to college are much more likely to also get married and stay married. Now, they get married later, later than they used to and later than other Americans. So there is this period which just didn't used to exist in the American experience where people are single for a decade after finishing high school. But those with a college education do tend to get married and stay married. And it provides them with stability and strength that turn out to be enormously important. Marriage is much weaker for Americans who don't go to college. Now, there are some positive signs there. Divorce rates have gone down actually quite a bit in the last 10 years, especially among non-college educated Americans, and that's good. And more kids are being raised in families of two parents than as a percentage. And we've seen a decline both in teenage pregnancy and in in out-of-wedlock births, and in the latter really for the first time in 60 years, in the last five years or so. So There are some reasons to be encouraged, but I think that divide is a big deal. And in that sense, the relative weakness of marriage is important. You know, there are always, I'd put it this way, America is always getting better and worse at the same time. It is definitely easy to focus on what's going wrong. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. We have to focus on problems. We can't just sit around and, and, you know, be glad about the things that are going well while people are in trouble. But we should see that not everything is going to hell all the time. That's not true. Our country in a lot of ways is very strong. There's nowhere you'd rather be. And I think that looking to the future among the developed democracies, demographically and socially and culturally, 
The United States is in a pretty good place. We have problems and we should worry about them, but we have a lot to be grateful for too. So let's talk about one problem. We're doing this interview in July and in a month, people, parents like me and like you've all, although you're younger than I am, one of the things we do is we prepare our, our children to go off to college as freshmen. And so, you know, and of course at AEI, we're surrounded by college kids, college graduates and people. So that's an important rite of passage in American life among the world that we operate in. And I wanted to ask you, as someone who loves the university, yeah. as I'm sure you do, or the idea of the university, do you feel now that a parent getting ready to send a kid off to one of the great universities in our land should feel less happy about what's going on in those universities than a parent 25 years ago? That, that maybe this, this institution that we care for so much is failing kids that, that, that go there in a way that they didn't in the past. They're, let's talk about one that maybe really does have problems. Yeah, I, you know... I try, as I just did, to see the upside in things. Yeah. It's pretty hard right now to see the upside in the university, especially in the elite universities. The one you can point to is that getting a college degree really does make a huge difference. It is the way to move up in American life. But I would say that the politicization of the university has accelerated tremendously in the last 10 years. It's always been an issue. And you can look in on American higher education at any time and find people complaining about politicization, complaining about the miseducation of the young. I mean, any time. You can look at the original charter of Harvard in the 17th century and find these complaints. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry about the particular forms that these problems take in different times. And the form that they take now is the politicization of the university. It's transformation into just another place to stand and yell about oppression. And we've got a lot of places to stand and yell about oppression. All of our institutions are transforming themselves into such places now. And I think that it's especially a problem that the university is doing that. Because the university is a place where people need to be exposed to the diversity and complexity of reality. That means different views. It means different analyses of the various subjects that the different disciplines take up. You have to learn about the real world. And... That means that it's particularly a problem when the university becomes just another place to express progressive political views. I think that has really been happening in a dramatic way in the past decade, and that we've seen a transformation of university administration that's especially alarming. The problem is not that, that literature professors are all Marxists. That's always been a problem. <laughs> and, you know, it's a problem. But if you, if you go and study literature, you have to deal with that problem. The deeper issue now is that the people who run the universities understand themselves to be engaged in a process of, I mean, it's really not short of brainwashing, and that they're offering students a model of what it is to run an institution that basically looks like, like brainwashing. It's politicization into what is also, by the way, ultimately a kind of anti-American way of thinking about our own society. That's a huge problem. and. That alongside with the fact that parents are paying more and more for this and that in relative terms, the, even the economic value of it is declining over time, parents have to ask themselves, why are we doing this? Yeah. And I think it's a serious question now. It also is an opportunity, though, for universities and colleges that are maybe not the elite ones like, like Phoebe went to <laughs> on the East Coast, <laughs> Ivy League colleges that say, look, I'm not, we're not doing that. We're, we're this other thing. 
And parents, discerning parents, wise parents and their children will say, I'd rather go to the University of North Carolina. I'd rather go to... I think there's a huge opportunity now for competition and not just for different universities to try to stake out different places, but for starting new new universities. We tend to imagine that's impossible. We just have what we have. But if you think about some of the universities that now strike us as always having been there, a lot of them came from a moment at the end of the 19th century that was a lot like this moment when a lot of wealthy people got disillusioned by Harvard and Yale and Princeton and started competitors. So I mean, Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, University of Mm -hmm. Chicago, some of the great now elite schools began in that time, literally just founded by wealthy people who wanted alternatives for their own children and became a different way of thinking about the research university. It wouldn't be easy to do and it wouldn't be cheap to do. But I think that there are now real opportunities for different models of what higher ed can look like. They can use technology differently. They can think differently about their purpose. And there would be demand. Well, just to sidetrack for a second on that, do you think AI should try to play some role in educating young people in America? Or should we just stick to our research think tank job and talk to Congress people only? Well, look, I think it's important to play some role. We shouldn't imagine that we can be that research university. I think the division of labor is a very important part of what makes our kind of society successful. And not everybody can do everything. But we do play a role. We bring students here. We expose them to great scholars and important ideas. And, you know, that functions as an alternative, as sort of during the summer, you can come and be deprogrammed so you can yeah, actually learn something right, about reality. Right. That's different from an alternative university, but it's important too. And I think it is very worthwhile to do that. I mean, it's worth pointing out, we had a summer honors program. I think you've all, you taught a class in it. So yep. we had 200 odd college students come to AEI. I did the summer honors program you before did the, AEI. There you go. And yeah. We did it this summer in the year of the pandemic when so many of the universities really did give kids kind of a hard time getting an education. And we, we, we made it happen for them this summer. So They're great students. And uh, I've done it now the last several years, even before I came to AI, actually, I was teaching a class. And, and I think it's a wonderful thing. It's very important. I wish it had been there when I was in college. So we, we talked about the institutions closer to the individual and, and people, but we're going to get to the big ones here in Washington. And you said something about standing up and shouting. And are we talking about Congress? Is that what they do? <laughs> Lead in. Yeah. I mean, look, there is a way that Congress is the, the epitome of this kind of process where an institution that is supposed to have something like an inner life to function internally in a way that advances some important goal instead becomes a platform, a stage for people to stand on, another place to express yourself. Congress has certainly gone through that. Members of Congress now think of the institution as a way to get a bigger social media following or a better time slot on cable news, rather than as a way to move legislation and and make public policy. And you see it with a lot of members who fundamentally approach the place with a communication strategy and not a legislative strategy. And it's hard to blame them. Congress doesn't give them much else to do. But I think that means that we have to think about how the institution can be reformed so that it can play its crucial role. Congress is absolutely pivotal to the recovery of our political culture. It's the place where, where people with different views about what's good for our country come together and work them out and bargain and negotiate and arrive at ways forward. There's nowhere else to do that. So if we don't do that in Congress, it doesn't happen. So the, when you say recovery or sort of hearkening back to a, a glorious time of Congress, I'm thinking of sort of Senator Dirksen and Rob, Bob Michael and, and sort of the, the old way in which the Democrats ran Congress and Republicans went along. 
Yeah, I don't really miss that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to know. You're not talking about that, are you? No, look, recovery doesn't have to mean turning back the clock. I, what I mean by recovery is a restoration of Congress to its proper role, the center of our constitutional system, where Congress is the place where differences are hammered out and problems are addressed. There's no perfect age you could point to for when that happened, but I think that that's a standard that we should hold up as a way to think about how to make the institution better. I don't think that period from the mid-60s to the end of the 70s was a golden age for Congress. I think Congress made a lot of mistakes in that time. It was one-party rule, and it produced a lot of terrible public policy that we're still... Everybody in this building is basically fighting what remains of that, of that great society moment. But it seems to me that ultimately the purpose of Congress is to enable, even to compel accommodation across lines of difference in America. And if there's one thing we need now in our, in our culture and our politics, it would be that. So we need Congress to function. So right now, Congress is the center of attention because President Biden has a big, big legislative agenda. And we're sort of, there's one's passed, he's got two more to go. And we're reading stories about moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans trying to make a deal. Why isn't that a sign that Congress is the center of attention right now? Why, why, what are you complaining about? I think in about? some ways the, the, that kind of hard infrastructure process, whatever we think of the substance of it, and I have some concerns about it, actually is how Congress is supposed to function. Now, that's happening alongside a separate partisan kind of deformation of the budget process where this very narrow Democratic majority is trying to get everything it ever wanted. Yeah. And... A, I don't think that's going to work, and B, that's not how Congress is meant to work. I think it's crazy for the narrowest congressional majority in our lifetimes to think that this is the moment when the left gets everything it wants. The Democrats have less than 51% in both houses of Congress. This is a very narrowly divided Congress, and that means it should be a time for compromise and for reaching across party lines. Now, there are a lot of obstacles to that in today's political environment. We don't have, for one thing, the kind of party factions that we would need. Part of what polarization means is not only that the parties are divided from each other, but that they're intensely unified within each party. And there aren't these kinds of actually moderate Democrats as a faction working together, able to reach across to some faction of the Republican Party. They really have to strain to make that happen. You can see that the committee system has become deformed and dysfunctional so that to write this bill they created their own alternative committee. That's, you know, it's 20 members of the Senate working together. You'd think, well, that's the committee that writes the transportation yeah, bill. But yeah, no, it isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just got together in a room by themselves. So there are, there are reasons to worry about it. But I do think that a process of bargaining and compromise like the one that's proceeding on that path is what Congress should look like. We'll see if it can happen. But as I say, at the same time, we're seeing what Congress shouldn't look like. What about the presidency? Where is it weak and where is it strong? Well, in some ways, the presidency has also been transformed, of course, into a platform for performance. This has been happening for a while. I would say, especially beginning with Barack Obama, we've had a different level of a kind of celebrity perception of the role of the president, which obviously continued and expanded with Donald Trump. Joe Biden, in a way, is a kind of throwback. You know, he's a person who was really formed in, in the Congress and spent his entire adult life as a, as a senator. And I think that that suggests a different attitude about the presidency. But I would say so far, Joe Biden is an exceptionally weak president. He doesn't, he hasn't really put his stamp on the executive. And I, I would say this, I think a measure of the strength of a president is whether a person in the second or third tier of political appointees in the administration 
knows what the president wants from him. I don't think anybody in the Biden administration knows. You know, the, the deputy assistant secretary of something or other has to be able to say, if the president was in my job, I know what he would do today. I think that that was the case for anybody in the Reagan administration, in the Clinton administration, even Obama and Bush. It wasn't the case in the Trump era because Trump just didn't think in those terms and it was chaotic. It's not the case now either. I don't think anybody could tell you what Joe Biden expects of them in the administration. And so we're seeing what a weak presidency looks like for the time being. I think it's not the end of the world. We've had presidencies that have been too strong for a long time. And so we could use a bit of a chance for Congress to take center stage. But the executive branch is overgrown and hyperactive. And that too is a function of the weakening of Congress. It steps in to fill a vacuum. Only Congress can really address that ultimately. So President Biden went to Philadelphia yesterday or the day before and gave a very strident speech about something that is covered in your department at yeah. AEI, voting and voting rules. And, and he equated what was happening in Texas and in Georgia, which are seem to me fairly technical adjustments to the process of voting to the old Jim Crow South and where it was, you know, a concerted conspiracy over many years to keep blacks from voting at all, period. Yeah. How do you see it? Is that a fair you know, analogy? And why is he getting away with it? Look, I think it's bonkers. I think it's totally crazy. First of all, these bills are not very significant changes to election administration anyway. And just to give an example, in, in the Texas one, they had a rule where you could vote for 24 hours because of the pandemic. They yeah. wanted the voting right. booths to always be open. And they decided, well, we don't really need that. Yeah, there was, and there was drive-in voting for the first time in 2020. And the notion that without drive-in voting, you're in Jim Crow, I mean, that's <laughs> just insane. Yeah. And that kind of rhetoric, first of all, it cheapens the, any discussion we could have about race in America to say that that's Jim Crow. Right. And secondly, more importantly, it encourages people to be skeptical about the legitimacy of our election system. And that is the real problem we have. And by the way, the president's remarks were not restrained. They yeah. were the most strident expression of that view. That's what the president, you expect the president not to do. Absolutely agree with that. I think we're in a moment now. First of all, our actual election administration system is in good shape. I mean, if people find it really hard to say anything good about anything, but American election administration is in very good shape. It is easier to vote than it's ever been. There's essentially no fraud in our elections. We've just been through a very tough year of pandemic and all kinds of other challenges. And the election was extremely well run in all 50 states. And we should appreciate that and be grateful for it. And instead, both parties are telling their voters not to trust the elections. And Republicans are saying there's fraud. And if we don't pass these bills in the states and the elections aren't trustworthy, Democrats are saying there's suppression. And if we don't pass this bill in Washington, the elections are not trustworthy. That's totally reprehensible and irresponsible. It is not true. And these bills are not necessary. The Republican bills in the states are not necessary. They're solving a problem that doesn't exist. H.R. 1 is much worse than that because it tells people all over the country that the narrowest majority in Congress they've seen in their lifetime is going to nationalize election administration in their red state and change all the rules from Washington. And by the way, all the Democrats are, are supportive of this and all the Republicans are against it. If you want a formula for making people lose their trust in the elections, that's it. So I, I think that the argument that Biden is making is absolutely irresponsible. It's not rooted in reality. And it's the problem, not the solution. The problem is public mistrust of elections. 
And this makes that worse, not better. So now turning to an institution that I have been saying has been behaving in a good way, and that, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you've all, your concern about Institutions of America even goes to the Supreme Court. But what do you think? Do you think the Supreme Court is upholding its end of the bargain and its role in our country? Well, look, if the problems we're looking at are like the ones we've just been talking about with Congress and the presidency and even the universities, the courts have resisted these to a very great degree. They've resisted the, the kind of extreme transparency that's turned Congress into a TV show. Generally speaking, they have not put cameras in courtrooms. The Supreme Court certainly has resisted that entirely. They tend to resist grandstanding, not entirely, but mostly. And I, I think on the whole, the courts have been pretty responsible. Now, the problems with, the, with federal courts in some ways run deeper than that. The courts are hyperactive. They, they assert too much power for themselves. This is a long-running problem that AI has been talking about literally for 50 years. I think things have gotten better on that front. And in no small part, thanks to the legal movement that began here at AI, and that has now created an entire generation of judges who believe that their role is limited and that their work should be restrained. And I think you see that in the work of this Supreme Court. So I I have a lot of hope that the court can be part of the solution and not the problem. I would say that there's a limit to what the court can do. And without Congress coming to understand its purpose better, there's not much the court can do to get the Constitution back on track. But I think we have a a very responsible Supreme Court now, just as of the past few years, and because of a new generation of judges put in. And I do have some hopes there. Is there a justice on the court now that whose opinions, when you read them through the course of their of the most recent term that you particularly like? Oh, it's Sam Alito, without question, my favorite justice by far. And he has been since he got on the court, but he certainly is now. You know, Alito is just right about everything. That's that's the simplest way I put this. (laughs) I would have to strain to find an opinion of his that I don't entirely agree with. And I think he also has a sense of his own role that has the proportions right. And so to me, he's really the model. So Phoebe, you may not know this, but Justice Alito wrote a very scathing dissent against an opinion for the court that Justice Gorsuch wrote. So this is not a liberal conservative thing. This is the disputes between conservatives. There, There are real divisions within the conservative legal movement about how aggressive and assertive judges ought to be. And I'm very much on the side that says that the role of the judge is limited to reading the law and the constitution and leaving the space open for the people's representatives to govern the country. That's not everybody's view, but in those debates, I generally find myself nodding along with Justice Alito more than anybody. What do you think of the kind of Roberts overview of the court? I think he's taken some flack from conservatives for being more restrained on the issues that he's taken up recently. So I generally like Justice Roberts, but I think that there are times when he's too much of a politician and too little a judge, when he worries in too explicit a way about the standing and reputation of the court. There's obviously a long tradition of the chief justice thinking that way. But I think ultimately a judge has to read the law and the Constitution. And there have been times when it seems like Justice Roberts is straining for an outcome that wouldn't be the one you'd arrive at by just reading the law and the Constitution. So turning to another component of our society, one that you are a member of, the sort of intelligentsia. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you really like? Who's who's doing great work? Who excites you? And, And do you feel that there's a vibrant, vibrant? debate 
on big ideas in America and, and journals that are, you're an editor of National Affairs, our journal here at AI. Is that world of ideas and journals of academic thinking, is that a lively, positive world? Are you proud of that? Yes, I think that it's a lively time. It's a it's a moment of it's a period of flux in American life, and that's often a time when there are ideas on the table and there are real debates that are open. I think there are debates within the right now about the role of government and the nature of our relationship to liberalism and to the underlying principles of American life that take up questions that have not been taken up explicitly for a long time. Now, m- my views on those questions traditional conservative views. And so I don't always love seeing those questioned and abandoned. I don't think that... You mean you're not a patriotic conservative? You're not a nationalist conservative? Yeah. You know, I think the argument against, say, industrial policy is just a damn strong argument. And it's, you know, it was strong the last time it had to be made, and it's still strong now. And yet, I think it is good that we have to make it again. And we have to take these questions up in a fundamental way. You know, the defense of liberalism will be good for us. The defense of constitutional principles will be good for us. I think these debates are healthy and worthwhile. And there are some ways in which the right allowed itself to get into the habit of just kind of repeating the ends of Ronald Reagan's sentences without remembering (laughs) how they started or why. And we have to remind ourselves. And so I, you know, there are some, some grooves we got into that weren't right. I especially think it's important to remind ourselves of the value of traditionalism, of social conservatism in relation to the rest of what the right believes. But I think ultimately where we ought to land is a kind of traditional mix of that social conservatism with a commitment to the freedom of the individual and the market economy. And I think it's great that we live in a time when we have to make that case. So that is happening. There is energy. There is a kind of lively debate. You know, in the age of Twitter, that doesn't always happen in the way you would like. It can sometimes get ad hominem or, or nasty. But that's okay, too. And ultimately, it's because people care about the outcome and care about the country. I think it's a good time to be in these debates. And some of that's happening on the pages of National Affairs. And a lot of it's happening here at AI. And people should pay attention. I think there's a lot to to read and and hear now. And an AI-affiliated scholar is now going to be the editor of National Review. That's right. It is an exciting time. I have one more Congress question. Go ahead. Go back to the central (laughs) institution. I was wondering what you think of all the power that Joe Manchin wields in Mm -hmm. this Congress. Do you see him as kind of the defender of the institution, or does he show kind of how it can be taken over by one person? Like, yeah. Is he so, the you know, strength or the weakness? I think there's something really interesting in this, because you would think that other members would see that they could do this too. Because right. why does Joe Manchin have all this power? Because he's the one Democrat who's not just absolutely predictably on the left of every issue. So the Democrats have 50 senators. That means all of them have this power. Any one of them could make demands on any piece of legislation and would have to be listened to because without his or her vote, the bill fails. Why is it that only Joe Manchin seems to see that and to actually try to achieve something? You know, I think part of it is that Manchin comes from a place where you can't just be a boring partisan. He comes from a state where there just aren't a lot of elected Democrats anymore. And where, I mean, Donald Trump won his state by 40 points. West Virginia is is to the right of many of the states represented by Republicans in the Senate. And so he's had to be someone who thinks outside the partisan box. I think those kind of people have always been the ones who have who have moved the debate in American political life and who have been the most effective politicians too, right? It's a it's a Democratic governor in Arkansas. It's a Republican in Hollywood. 
who becomes governor of California, who really become transformative figures in our politics. And the, the, the sort of lockstep partisanship you find now on both sides, among other things, it weakens members of Congress. There's great strength in being less boring and predictable than that. So Did I hear I, that very subtle reference to Bill Clinton. I thought that was very. And, very and Ronald Reagan. Look, I yes. think that there's great strength in someone who has grown up in politics, being used to talking to people who don't start out agreeing with them and having to think, what are these people going to say about what I'm doing? That's just enormously valuable. And it's missing in a lot of our politicians now because they see themselves as just talking to their most devoted voters all the time. Ultimately, Congress is there to compel deal-making and accommodation. And so there have to be people who are willing to cross these lines and think about how to solve problems together. So look, I think Joe Manchin is a constructive force. I also think the ways that exist to stand in the way of simple majoritarianism in the Senate are important. I absolutely would defend the filibuster. And I did when Republicans held the Senate too, because it forces deal-making and it prevents this kind of lockstep policymaking that often results in bad ideas. And so I think it's enormously important that there are people like that. There are some Democrats like that in the House, too. You don't hear from them much. But I think if, if the Senate Democrats pass a $4 trillion budget, you're going to discover some Democratic moderates in the House who are not interested in committing political suicide to, to pass Bernie Sanders' bill. One last question. How, how do you explain the enduring popularity of Donald Trump? Well, look, I think some of it is truly sui generis. It's, it's about his personality. It's about his distinct kind of celebrity, which he had built up over a long time, that allowed him to connect to people who feel like they are not taken seriously by the elites who run everything. This is a populist time in America and a, and, a, and a distinctly populist time in a particular way, which is that we have now one elite in our society. It used to be the case in America that the people who ran our politics were actually very different from the people who ran the universities or the people who ran major corporations or Hollywood studios. They came from different places. They had different cultures. They had different politics. Now they're all the same. They all went to the same few schools. They all have been shaped in the same way. They speak the same language. And it's not the language of the rest of the country. I think Donald Trump, on a very basic and profound level, connected with people's sense of this. It's weird in one way that this billionaire from New York would become a populist figure. But in other ways, it's not because he's an outer boroughs guy who was looked down on by Manhattan elites. And everybody in America feels that way now. And so I think Trump had a real connection with people at that level. You know, he has real political skills. He has a knack for seeing what connects with people and pushing on that. And so I, you know, you can see how people looking for someone who expresses the kind of frustration and at some level also resentment that they feel about so many American institutions and elites could be drawn to a figure who just seems unafraid of speaking that way, where so many others, you know, are worried about trampling on norms. Now, I care a lot about norms. I think people should be worried about trampling on those norms. But the appeal of just being a bull in a china shop is very great. And I think there was a huge vacuum for him to fill, and he's done that. You know, when you were talking about the elites and all these institutions all being the same and coming from the same world and that Trump sort of gave a voice to those who rejected that uniformity or orthodoxy. I sometimes think that I'd like AI to be a voice against that orthodoxy, yeah. against the 
prevailing elite in the university, the prevailing elite in politics, the prevailing elite in Hollywood, the prevailing elite in the media. Is that a good idea for me to aspire for AI or, or, or will that take us down a kind of contrarian path? Well, I think the question is how to do that. We obviously have to be countercultural. Yes. There's no way that AI could go with the flow because we believe ultimately in the dignity of the individual and the importance of freedom. And those things are now very controversial. We believe in them because we believe that every human being needs to be formed for freedom and that the institutions of formation, family, religion, the, the, the school and university, the workplace, are places that have to be preserved in their capacity to form Americans to believe in the American ideal. And that And the individual as an individual, not a member of a race or right. an ethnic group. And that those kinds of ideas now are intensely controversial. That means that we've got to fight for them. That's what we do. You know, and look, AI was founded that way. It was founded as a countercultural institution to push against a kind of elite convention that said that collectivization and centralization was the natural way forward of history. And over time, the institution has grown to make a broader case about what it takes to flourish as a human being and how we solve problems in a free society. And that case is not the argument made by, generally speaking, by the progressive elite that runs a lot of our institutions. So we are countercultural. At the same time, we are arguing for the institutions of our society to protect them from the people who would claim to run them. We want to save the university from the professors and the administrators. We want to save the constitution from the progressive judges. And that means that we can't be antinomian. We can't argue that they should all be burned down. I don't believe they should be. I don't think people here do. That's not an argument we can make. So our challenge is more complicated than that. We're not a, we're not a populist politician. We're arguing for the American way of life, which at this point is threatened by, by different kinds of illiberalism, some of which emanate from the right and some from the left. I think we've got to keep our head and stay sane and push back against both. And so that means that the way in which we have to be countercultural also has to be persuasive to people who don't start out where we start out. And so it requires a certain tone, a certain attitude. I think especially it requires us to be inviting and to offer a positive agenda and not just a set of resentments, to offer a, a sense and a vision of what we think the good life looks like, of what we think a flourishing America looks like, rather than just pointing out where the left is undermining those things. Saying yes and not just no has got to distinguish us from other kinds of countercultural forces in this moment. Well, that is a good way to finish. Inspiring. And inspiring, yes. Phoebe said. <laughs> if you can inspire Phoebe, <laughs> you've, all, you've accomplished a lot. She's all business. <laughs> Thank you very much for Thank being here. Thank you very you. much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.